All right. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me back. I, uh, I'm of all the places I get to be uh, throughout the year. This is definitely uh, one of my favorites, uh, my favorite places to be. I am. Um, thanks. Uh, I pretty much say that it's so strong here in your midst, and that is not something that I say everywhere I go. Um, I don't know if you recognize it, because perhaps, you know, even, I know you started the year, but you might tend to get used to it. Uh, but what you guys got going here is very special, and uh, if you will, let me just speak to the leaders of this group for just a minute. I just implore you to um, recognize him here just in the middle, and just the Spirit of God, His presence here. Uh, that is something that uh, you do not deserve. I don't say that kind, you know, condemning. I'm just saying this is the way it is. But God, for whatever reason, has chosen to uh, to put His presence here. And uh, I would I beg you guys as leaders not to let your ego, he will be small. Where you will be lifted up, he will not be at all. Um, I, I did not mean to rhyme that, but uh, but that was awesome. Um, but I, I, I uh, no, seriously, um, I got my start in ministry, uh, in college ministry. Um, probably one of the closest things I've ever come to what I would consider to be just one of those genuine. Uh, we had started a small Bible study of a handful of people that grew to several hundred people. And uh, one night, I remember, um, it was right when God was really starting to just, you know, his presence was, was thick. And uh, I, one night, I remember um, a guy, a friend of mine came and he, he gave a talk. Um, and God cannot be where sin is, you know, being practiced and tolerated. And uh, probably a 25-minute talk. And then at the end of it, he kind of looks out at the audience, which was probably, you know, not much bigger than this one. And he said, uh, he said, well, does anybody have anything to say? And when he said that, uh, you know, I kind of thought for a minute, like, all right, well, here we go, because we weren't used to doing what you just did. I thought, the Bible study leader, I will get up and close in prayer. And uh, we waited probably about 30 seconds, and right before I stood up, I'll never forget, one of our worship leaders, our worship leader, um, stood up all the way across the room, and I could see from where I was standing that he was shaking. And he said, he said, I'm the reason that God really, I am just so proud. It's always about me. It's about what everybody thinks about me. And I just need somebody to pray that I would decrease so that God would increase. And uh, some people got around him and laid their hands on him and prayed for him. Um, it's hard for me to explain, but whatever was happening to him at that moment happened to me because I felt the Spirit of God say, no, it's you. You're the reason that I can't wear prayers for thy kingdom come. What you really mean is my kingdom come. And, uh, and uh, I got up and I confessed that. And some people laid their hands on me and prayed for me. That went on for the next three and a half hours as individuals got up and just began to, God's spirit was moving. I remember one kid stood up and he said, I would use me. I'm going to go do that right now. He left the Bible study, went to his friend, led his friend, his roommate to Christ, and brought him back to the Bible study within an hour. Um, it was awesome. I, uh, one of the guys stood up and he said, I've got another guy stood up and said, man, i got some things in my life, some we saw about some magazines and some things he knew were very displeasing to campus. And he said, I knew this was borderline crazy, but I'm just going to burn them. And uh, he dug a hole and he put that stuff in there. And it was somewhere close to, we estimated $6,000 worth of stuff uh, that people burned that night. Now, that very quickly got us labeled on campus as a cult. Uh, it may not have been the wisest of Christianity. ceased to be doctrines and they become presents. You know, I, I would compare it almost to, you know, my daughters. I have three daughters. They know that I love them. Right, but you know, suddenly I'm walking along and I'm holding one of their hands and I just can't contain myself anymore. And I reach down, I pick one of them up and I spin them around and I hug them. My sense, their sense of my presence is much more real in that moment. Right? They, they, they sense that. 
What you guys, I believe, if I was picking up anything correctly, is you were sensing the spirit and the presence of God here. And that does what sermons cannot do, what Bible studies cannot do, what programming, planning, and outreaches cannot do. God can do more in five minutes than you and I can do in a lifetime. And so Isaiah 59 says, The Lord's arm is not short and that it cannot save. You know what that means? It means God's arm is not any shorter today than it was when he raised Jesus from the dead. And I know that you look at your campus like, man, this is a place of, of, of renowned academics and skepticism, and God can't move here. You need to put that up because if God raised Jesus from the dead, he can work on your campus. Right? And it's just as hard for Jesus to work on this campus as it has anywhere in history, but God does stuff like that. Right? And God that brought Jesus out of the grave can work on your campus because your guys, your campus isn't any more spiritually dead than anywhere else. Right? You've seen Princess Bride. There's going to be that it cannot hear. You know what that means? It means God is no less compassionate today than he was when he hung on a cross and forgave the very people who crucified him. That means that the same God that was able to forgive people from the cross and was able to sweep through Jerusalem and change the people who had been his crucifiers and tormentors, same God that what works on your campus today. Right? The hesitation, the unwillingness is not in him, it's usually in us. That we just don't want to humble ourselves and believe that God can do the impossible. And so I would just beg you, I would beg you as I sense tonight, again, I had no, okay? All right, well, uh, as uh, Louisa mentioned, I am uh, one of the pastors of the Summit Church. Uh, we have a campus right, uh, I think it's probably walking distance from here, isn't it? I've never walked it, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, it, uh, the Summit Church, uh, I've been there for seven years. Uh, my other identity is I'm a father of three little girls, and you understand that, but go to our church. Uh, you know, in the summer while you were gone, we, my wife and I found out we were pregnant with number four. Um, it is a little boy. Uh, I did find that out. It was not planned uh, by us. It was planned by God, but we had no idea that it was coming. Uh, and so uh, our life will change. It means that we're starting to have, um, you know, some spiritual conversations. Uh, they're not really going like I had planned on them going. I, have, I think I have these kind of romantic, idealized ideas about what our conversation should be like. Uh, you know, and so, but they just never work out that way. Um, the other night, uh, uh, Tuesday, no, no, Wednesday, it, two, Wednesday, two days ago, um, you know, something about explaining to my family the ways of God. And uh, my daughter, you know, says, she says, Daddy, um, does Jesus ever, and she kind of trailed off for just a second, just long enough for me to start mentally filling in what she might say. You know, and I, just for a second, I was kind of excited because I was like, she's going to be, here's what she said, does Jesus ever... Pass gas. That was her thing. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, so anyway, I'm not doing too well, I think, with my girls, but um, God's being gracious to our church. Uh, our church does have a number of college students that goes to it from, uh, from believe it or not, UNC. And uh, we have a lot of them that, that come, which means a couple things about our church. Uh, one, it means we're dirt poor, uh, right? Because if there's one thing that we all know is true of you guys is that most of you don't have any money. Uh, one of my favorite uh, memories, uh, recent memories as a pastor, uh, was a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from one of you guys. Okay? A McDonald's bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit with a little, like, you know, um, sticky note on it that said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I unto you. Okay? Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, we're poor, but, uh, uh, but here's the exciting thing to me. Um, what's a thousand churches in the next 40 years? Uh, and that is going to be um, everywhere from right here in Raleigh, Durham, to uh, we planted one in New York City and in Manhattan, actually in Chelsea. 
Um, we planted one in Richmond, Virginia, one in Youngstown, Ohio, um, Afghanistan, Indonesia, uh, Turkey. Um, I think there's 13 total part of that process. Uh, we believe in going to cities and blessing the cities by meeting the physical needs of the cities and doing that uh, as a testimony to Jesus Christ and a way to plant churches. I know not everybody goes to our church in this room, and I don't even think, I'm not saying by any means, there's a lot of good churches here in the area, uh, but I just want to encourage you while you are here to make your time with your church count that you find college, and that is part of your local church. Um, okay, here's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, I want to talk about what it means for you as you begin your year. As I prayed through what you know, the different options, this is just what God, I think, led me to. Um, what it means for you to start your year following Jesus. Now, I know that many of you, I want you to revisit for some of you that do what it actually means as shown in that passage that we just read. Um, you see, I grew up in a very, very Christian home. I don't know how many of you, that was your experience, but I grew up in a family where my parents had become Christians the year that I was born. I don't really think there was any correlation to that. Uh, you know, like, dear God, help us, we need you, or, or whatever. But um, the result was they had me in church all the time. Uh, I grew up in one of those churches where you were always in church, because if you weren't in church, you could be somewhere sinning. And so uh, they always had us in church. Uh, you know, in fact, I used to tell people the only drug problem I ever had was getting drugged to church. Um, uh, if that makes any sense, evidently not. You know, just at every point I could quote verses. Used to say that, you know, I was so full of Bible that if, mos if a mosquito bit me, he'd fly away singing, there's power in the blood. Okay, if you uh, know that hymn, which again, evidently a few of you, most of you don't. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I knew all the stuff. I knew all the stuff. And um, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old. You know, you think I was serious about that. But I, I know that when I was about 16 years old, um, I knew pretty much who I wanted to be in charge of my life, and that was not God, it was me. Um, you know, it's, I didn't want to go to hell. I still believed in God, and I didn't think hell was a, you know, anything I wanted to go to, so I was you. And that's pretty much how I lived my life, because to be honest with you, I thought God's rules were pretty archaic. I thought that God, if he really was in control of my life, would probably screw it up. So I want to know what could I do to keep him paid off and then be in charge of my life. All that changed, it was a Friday night when one of my Sunday school teachers, because our church had Sunday school, um, took us over to his house, and then we were going to play basketball. But he made it stop before we got started and have a 30-minute devotional, which I was pretty ticked off about um, because nobody really wanted to do that. Uh, but I remember he opened his Bible to Matthew 7, and he read that passage in Matthew 7 that talks about on the last day, many will stand before Jesus' throne, and they will look at Jesus, and they'll say, Lord Jesus, man, we've been a teacher looking out at that audience of probably not more than eight of us and saying, some of you guys are going to be in that number. Because you think you know Jesus because you can quote verses and because you asked him to come into your life and because you go to church because you know how to sing some hymns. He said, but you don't actually know Christ. And again, if you've never experienced it, it's kind of hard to stand before me one day and you have known how to play a game with me, but you don't know me at all. And that started me on a course that lasted about two years. And at the end of those two years, I finally laid down my life and said, Jesus, I don't want to know religion. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want nothing else but you. And I want you to tell me what you want in my life or from what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter, yeah, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 is probably one of the most confusing stories to me about, you know, that Jesus ever had, at least on the surface. Uh, probably one of the most misunderstood. So if you have a Bible, it'd probably be a good idea to open it there. I'm going to take us back through the passage. I know we read it once, but I want to walk you back through this, how this breaks down. A certain ruler asked Jesus, or lawyer, we find out in other accounts of the story, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I just want to start out real quick, real quick, by commending this guy for his question. 
This is by far the most important question you will. First of all, you got to admit that the most important question that you'll ever consider is what happens after you die. Because when you really consider the length of what eternity must be like, or even the age of the earth, you got to admit that your 60 or 70 years here on earth are pretty short. James chapter 4 says it's like, like a vapor, like when you breathe onto a mirror and it's, that's what your life actually is like. It's a vapor that appears for just a moment. How crazy is it for you to live as if that vapor is all that mattered and not pay any attention, not pay any attention to what happens after that? Again, I mean, you follow this? Even if you don't believe in God, you've got to admit this is a good question. That means 94% of the people who have ever lived are dead. That's why I'm telling you, this question, I believe, is crucially important. And to not give any thought to it is crazy. And what I find is the deal with most college students, honestly, is not that they have come to really wrestle with God and then reject it. Most of them just never think about it. Wow, it makes some money. And you're like, that's crazy to not think about about eternal life and eternity, even to answer the question for sure that it's not there, how can we be better than to just ignore it? Remember one of these reality TV shows? Um, I'm sure you've seen things like this. This one was called The Face. There was this guy that what he did for a living was he trained people to jump out of airplanes, and then he would jump out after them and film them so they would have a you know sort of a record of, of, of their experience. So uh, in this video they're showing you have these this married couple that jumps out of the airplane. Right, and he jumps out after him, and he's getting some great shots, you know, on top and down below and on the sides. And then you see the camera come down for about five, six seconds, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, the, the camera starts to go crazy. And the commentator comes on, and he says, we think it was at this moment that he realized that he jumped out of the airplane and forgot his parachute. He'd done it so many times, he just forgot to put his parachute on for that guy to start thinking about the next four or five minutes of his life and thinking about what he's wearing, how he looks, how much money he has back home, where he graduated from college. Right? And that's, that's kind of pathetic and stupid in light of the fact that his life is about to come to a very abrupt end. We see you have no idea how far you are falling. You just don't know where the bottom is. We all know that we're going to die. We know that we're going to stand before God. It is crazy to not pretend or to pretend like that's not happening. It's like you got to stick a dynamite in your hand and you don't know how long the fuse is. It's what drives me, by the way, in realizing that every person that I look at is going to stand before God in their life and give an account. Right? All right, so that's his question. Here's how it goes. Verse 19. Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? Now, the thing you got to love about Jesus is if you grew up, that's not the real one. Jesus was always saying rude stuff that confused everybody. This is a great example. Right, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Right? Awesome. Jesus says, now watch this. Nobody's good except God alone. All right? Now, that's a very important statement. We're together. Look at the guy, and the guy responds, yeah, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, this lawyer, though he was probably pretty intellectual, evidently was not the spiciest Dorito in the bag. Because Jesus had just told him the answer to the question he was about to ask him. Do you see that? Hey, nobody's good but God. Are you good? But God, are you good? Yeah, I sure am. Yeah, I just told you the answer. Okay, that's what, what's going on here, right? By the way, it's not that this guy's a hypocrite. And this guy's not like, you know, like, like, like some embezzling adultery deal going on. Because when he said that, nobody around him like first heard this. He said to him, well, you didn't get it, so 
You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, y'all, at first, Jesus' response to this guy seems kind of strange because it looks, I'll tell you what, I'll give you another one, and if you don't keep that one, then you're not going to go to heaven, right? But that's not what he's doing. What he's doing, he's he's trying to show this guy that though he is religious on the outside, He's moral. He's a commandment keeper. He's active in his church. He's trying to show it's money. And if he had to choose between money or Jesus, well, he'd take money. You see, the first commandment is that we worship God and not idols. And this guy thinks, well, of course I don't worship any idols. I don't have any little gold statues in my backyard that I bow down to. But you can worship something without bowing. Every single one of you, whether you are religious or not, Oftentimes people say, well, I'm not a worshiper, I'm not religious. You can't turn off your worship drive by not being religious any more than you can turn off your sex drive by being single. Right? It's something in you. You you worship whatever you look to for and its significance. You worship an idol is whatever you think is so fundamental to your life that you could not imagine living without it. And if you had to choose between that thing and God, well, you would choose it. By the way, it's not necessarily a bad thing that keeps most people from God. And this is money, and money's not a bad thing. He has to have it. By the way, he'd like to have God and money, but if he had to choose between the two, well, then he'll hang on to his money. You see, we say that an idol is is a good thing that's become a God thing, and so has become a bad thing. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's just a good thing that's become a God thing, and so the whole, you know, forbidden tree. You're like, how is that idol? Paul calls it idolatry, Romans 1. How is that idolatry? I don't see them in the garden, you know, worshiping the tree, going, oh, tree, we worship you, you know, come into our life. They're not doing that, right? But how is it idolatry? Easy. They thought that whatever it was the tree would give them was more fundamental and important of that thing. There is something for all of you that is so fundamental to your life, listen, that you cannot imagine being happy without it. Basically, I mean, idol gives you one of four things. I don't want time to spend long on these, but I'll just throw them out to you, okay? These are kind of deep, but you, you know, you'll, you got Whatever in your life gives you meaning or worth. For some of you, it is your intelligence. Right? That is what makes you who you are. And you were in high school, and you were you had an identity based on how smart you were. For some of you, it's your, it's your looks, right? For some of you, it's your future. You're like, I'm going to get a job, make tons of money, and that's going to define a sense of worth because they're better than everybody else. By the way, that's what this guy, it's his other idol. You know, he's a commandment keeper. And he's always kind of established himself as being better than everybody else. And so he has an identity from being wealthy and being and being religious. All of you have something that gives us. In fact, this happens all the time in movies if you know how to watch for it. Um, well, the greatest movie of the 1970s, anybody know what it was? Say Rocky One. It was Rocky One, okay? Rocky One. In fact, which of the Rockies were bad? Two through six, okay? Rocky one. Rocky one was fantastic. And uh, Rocky one, how yeah, I many of you seen Rocky one? Just out of curiosity. Were uh, in the ice skating rink, and she was skating, and he was walking home beside her. And you remember she asked him the question? You remember this? She said, why are you going to do it? Why are you going to stand in front of the most powerful man in the world and have your brains beaten in? Right? You remember, remember, remember Sylvester Stallone's wise philosophical answer? If I can go 15 rounds with the world champ, I'll know I'm not a bum. If I can stand in the ring with the world champ and give him a good fight, I'll know that I have meaning and significance and worth. All of 
you have something that you feel like gives you worth. You, all of you have something that lifts you out of bumness, okay? It used to be popular like eight years ago, but, um, you know, Survivor. It, it's like life for us is one big Survivor episode where we're trying to show everybody else that we're not the one that ought to be thrown off the island, right? An idol gives you meaning or worth. An idol, secondly, gives you fulfillment. I just be rich, and that's okay. I could not imagine being happy and being poor. Could you? Money is his fulfillment. He had to have I give you the biggest one in our culture. What's the biggest idol for fulfillment? Love. Right? I, most people have this mindset because they get it from country, music, and you know, Bob has to like you as long as you got somebody to love. If I had somebody to love, then I'd be okay. Right? That's an idol because people are like, I've got to have that. That is the most fundamental thing of my life. Uh, my wife had just gotten up reading the uh, the Twilight novels. Am I, am I, so when she gets done, I mean, she read them all seriously in like two weeks. You know, I didn't see the woman for a solid two weeks. Um, every night she's up to 5 a.m. reading these things. Uh, when she gets done, um, I thought she was becoming a vampire, you know, when she was reading these things. Um, when she gets to the end of it, when she gets to the end of it, um, I asked her, I said, well, how are they, you know? I said, were they, were they trashy? Because, you know, they're teenager novels and it's a trashy novel. Uh, she said, well, no, they're not trashy. She said, but they are sad. I was like, well, why are they sad? She said, because, you know, the main audience for these is high school and college age girls. And she says, it perpetuates this idea that what you've got to find, the only thing that you need to really, and that God doesn't exist. And I was kind of offended, you know, when she said that. <laughs> No. Um, and she said, she said, that guy doesn't exist. She says, and these girls read that, and they go off into college looking for this guy that's going to make all their dreams come true. You know? She said, it's just, it, it sets them up for a God that cannot help them. Right? And I'll tell you this, as a, a guy who's been married happily, very happily, for nine years, lonely, insecure people become lonely, insecure married people. Problems like loneliness and security are not cured by another human being. They're only cured by God. Fulfillment. Here's number four. Security. Meaning, worth, secure, uh, uh, fulfillment, security. That's number whatever we're on, three. I, I don't count, right? All right, there's three kinds of people. Those who can count, those who can't. Not the, the three. Obviously, what is it for this guy? His money. What, what do you got to have in place to be secure? Number four. Um, uh, the fourth characteristic of an idol uh, for fulfillment security is comfort. It's wherever you turn for comfort when you're down. Right? Again, for some people it's going to be pleasure. Some guys, some of you girls, you get depressed, you don't go to the bar, you go to the mall, right? right. I'll tell you something, my wife, and again, she would not be sharing this with you. Um, my wife is beautiful, and I don't say that to brag, I'm just saying, I don't know how that happened, but for all you ugly guys, there's hope, okay, because I'm married to a smoking hot woman. Uh, but she, my wife, um, my wife, you know how that works, right? And, and, you know, it's never the girls that you think struggle with that and struggle with that. It's always the girls that are beautiful. And my wife struggled with that. And I was like, why? Why would you struggle with that? You were beautiful. And she said, because I felt like in order to have worth, I had to have an absolute body. And this is what she said was really interesting. She said, and here's what happened is two idols came into conflict because I turned to the beauty of my body for meaning and worth, but my comfort, God, was food. So when I was depressed about my body, I would want to eat. 
And that's the whole cycle of binge and purge, binge and purge, because too many. That's what an idol is, and that's what this guy is. Now, here, listen, here's what we usually do in Christianity. We tell you, well, you can have Jesus and your idol. And you can't. And that's the first point. We must come to Jesus from our idols. Everything to hold on to Him and your obedience to Him is conditioned on nothing because He is your God. By the way, that's number two. Here's our second, the, the second thing we learn from this passage, and that is a lot of religious people don't know God at all. This guy wants to use God. This guy's like, hey, enough of God. So then he goes to heaven, and that God will get him out of a jam, and when he's worried about graduating, that God will show up and help him. But this guy doesn't want to give everything to God because God is not enough for him. He wants to use God as a means to an end. I'll give you a little image here. When I, um, uh, when I was 16 years old, one of my, rock, uh, my, one of my hobbies, when I went rock climbing, uh, I went always with my four friends. Uh, we decided we wanted to do rappelling. Now, none of us had ever been rappelling, but one of us had read about it in a book. Okay? Now, you know what rappelling is? Rappelling is when you, you, know, you kind of you go down the wall. So we went out to Hanging Rock State Park in North Carolina, and uh, we hooked into this little belay system, and uh, you know, volunteered to be first. Not sure how that happened, but I'm standing up there on this 75-foot rock, and he hooks me into the belay system, and he's like, okay, lean back. And I was like, what's, you, you remember this? Those of you that have gone rappelling, like, what's wrong with you? Of course I'm not going to lean back. There's a 75-foot drop right there. Not been on the line. No way I would have done it. But when, when you're 16 years old, your manhood is always on the line, right? And I was like, all right. You know, so, I, I, seriously, I was like, I prayed one more time just to make sure that I was saved. I was like, Jesus, just one more time to come into my heart. Bless you, um, you know, it'd be great, okay? And uh, then I did this just in case. I remember, I remember I leaned back, and for like a split second, like everything kind of like, you know, nothing happens in the universe, and and then I caught, you know, I caught that rope, and there I am looking straight up into the heavens. Feet are, you know, perpendicular with the rock, and my body's parallel with the ground. I was like, this is awesome. And you got to jump more than that. So I was like, all right. So I, you know, got up my courage and jumped like, you know, a foot. And then I jumped, you know, like 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, and I was down at the bottom because I'm, I'm a real fast learner. And um, my best friend was in line next, and of course I'm down at the bottom now. And uh, my best friend uh, was. He was more scared of heights than I was. He's still scared of heights. My best friend, I don't know if you had a best friend like this, but this guy was um, better looking than I was, more athletic, had a brighter future. I hated this kid, but he was my best friend. And um, and uh, he, was, he was shaking. And man, I was just letting him have it. I just felt so... Until finally, he, you know, he takes his leg and he kind of reaches it, put his leg down and he, he finds a foothold. Then he takes his other leg down and he begins to kind of work his way down the rock. All right, he goes down about 10 feet and he gets to a place on the rock. And the rock was shaped like this, if you visualize from the side. A real sharp angle like this, and then it turned on this little vertex. You're a pretty good rock climber. You can climb on an angle like that, okay? You know, but um, unless you're built like, I don't know, somebody, you know, strong, you're not going to be able to climb on an inverted thing. So he gets to this vertex and he just kind of hovers there for a minute and he turns around and he climbs back up, right? Because, okay, listen, there's a world of difference between rock climbing and rappelling. In rock climbing, you both you use a rope in both of them, but in rock climbing, what you're doing is you're using your arms and your legs to climb up and down the rock and you're using the rope as a safety net if you fall. When you're rappelling, you're trusting in nothing but the rope to hold you up. 
Right, here's the way a lot of things. Jesus, I want to follow you and know you, but here's what I want. I want you to take me to heaven and I want you to get me out of the jam when I call to you. But as far as yielding your whole life to him, no way. Here's how you know that you're in that category. Number one, your obedience to Jesus is conditional. There are areas of your life, dating life. You can't touch my dating life because I'm afraid of what you'll do with it. Or how about this one? This is getting a little, getting a little personal. You've never given Jesus your future because you know what you want with your future and you don't want to give him control with it because you're afraid of what he'll do with it. What if he doesn't want you to make a lot of money? What if he wants you to be a single missionary in Saudi Arabia? Oh, Jesus, you go where he tells you. You have no conditions. Somehow in American Christianity, we have preached to Jesus to whom you do not have to submit your life. You cannot know Jesus that way. You know, the way the old statement is, he's either the Lord of... You don't know him. That's what's wrong with this guy. He doesn't, he has conditional, he won't let Jesus touch certain parts of his life. You have limits to your obedience. Guys, I know that many of you for the first time in your life are you're free. Right? I remember when I was a freshman. How many freshmen? Late, it was the third night I was there, I was late in bed. Have you had this happen yet? I was late in bed. My parents were, you know, they weren't that strict, but they were still parents. And uh, I was like. I could get up right now, it's 3 a.m., and I could go anywhere with anybody, and nobody would even ask me about it. Nobody's in charge. Is it you or is it Jesus? Have you ever given him a blank check with your life? Is it not now's the time for you to do that? There's a little bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Y'all, God's your co-pilot. Somebody's in the wrong seat. Because God doesn't come as your co-pilot to help you out in the traffic jam with his car. Until you're ready to acknowledge that, you're not ready to follow Him. You've limits to your obedience. The second thing is you don't really want to know God. There's no desire. There's no hunger to know God. Right? Here's the third point that I'll make here, and I'll make this one real quick. And that is, it takes... This guy thought if he took his hands off his life, he would lose control, and he thought he would never be happy following Jesus. And I will tell you this, for those of you that are not following Jesus yet, it goes down to an issue of trust. You don't want Jesus to be in control because you only trust yourself in control. And I know that feeling. I've been at the lean back on him fully. You can never really follow Jesus. See? You're like, well, how am I supposed to trust him? How am I supposed to trust him? You see, the guy that's issuing this invitation, and evidently this guy can't see this, who wants who's going to take the sin of this ruler into his own body. He's going to have nails driven in his hands and his feet, spit in his face, and his beard ripped out, and a crown of thorns on his head for the sins of that rich young ruler. You see, the ruler was rich, but Jesus did everything, all of his riches, turned his back on all of it, and gave it all up for that rich young ruler. You want to know how you can trust Jesus? Nobody's ever loved you like Jesus. I know your parents probably love you. Most of you, right? I mean, some of you may have bad relationships, but your parents have never loved you, precious. Precious means, right, that you hold on to it at the expense of everything else. God turned his back on the universe so that he could come and have his body ripped open so that he could rescue you. And Hebrews 12, too, says he did it with joy because he knew that he was rescued. So 
from the vantage point of one who has given up all of it for you, you can trust him. There's nobody whose hands your life would be safer in, not even in your own. Nobody cares for you like Jesus. You can trust him. It's uh, not far from here. Actually, very close to here. Um, he's one of these backyard mechanics. Total redneck. All right. Anybody here from the South, you know what redneck is? This guy is redneck. Let me tell you, all right? I love it. And uh, I go to his house. He's, you know, he's got this garage in the back. And uh, every time I take my car to him, he tells me what a piece of crap it is. He's driving it. It's, just, it's awesome. And uh, I've shared Christ with him probably ten times. I, I'm, like, I'm like, his name's Lynn. He's like, Lynn, you need Jesus. His response, yeah, I know I need the Jesus. He's like, but you know, Jesus, he says, but not, 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 not now. He's 68 years old and he's a chain smoker. I'm like, Lynn, that day might be today, okay? So you need to understand. You know, what are you talking about? He's like, he's like, yeah. He goes, it just, I don't know. All right, so we, we've been over this like half a dozen times. I'm like, Lynn, you've got to trust Jesus. Yeah, no. All right, so this last, one of his last times I was with him, right? He came to our church, by the way, at Easter, which I thought was awesome. Um, but when he when he gets done talking, I was like, Lynn, you need Jesus. And he says, he said, yeah, I just don't. I go out and get my car. His friend was taking me home. And I was sitting there, and he comes out, running out of the shop, and he, he bangs on the window. He says, I came out here because there was something. Somebody was yelling. It sounded like a calf was dying or, you know, like, like a cow being shot or somebody was hurt. And I came out here, and, and sure enough, down the road, I'm going to drop my southern accent because it's hard to talk like that. He goes, sure enough, I come outside, and I saw about three houses down. What My neighbor was up on the roof, and he was holding on to the chimney. Help! Help! And I was like, what's wrong with him? Right? And so I go over to his house, and he's holding on to the, the chimney, and the, and the ladder is leaning up against the roof. And he was like, help, I'm stuck, I can't get down. And when said, I look back up, and I'm like, well, son, the ladder's right there. Just go over to the ladder. The ladder. And I got on the roof. And I looked at him, and I said, son, come just take a few steps over here, and I'll help you down the ladder. He says, the guy was just like, he's like, he's like he, he didn't pay any attention. He just kept holding onto the chimney going, help, I can't. I'm too scared to let go. He said, I walked over to the chimney where he was on the roof. And I held out my hand and said, son, just take my hand, and I'll walk you over to the ladder. I'll fall. And Lynn said, I looked at this guy, and I said, man, if you don't let go of that chimney, I'm going to knock you off. All right? And then look at Lynn, my mechanic, okay, who I probably didn't even graduate from junior high school. Uh, he looks at me and he says, he says, he says, it kind of sounds to me like what you're saying, that Jesus wants me to come, but I can't because I'm scared and I won't let go. And I was like, bro, that's not bad. That's, that's it, you know. Now he still, to my knowledge, has not trusted Christ. But you see what he what I'm getting at? Jesus has not called you to be religious. Religious people kill by right? Jesus has said, follow me. And to follow him means that you lay down full control and you let Jesus be Lord. Guys, the gospel is this. You and I were created to love and serve and know God. But we love God, which in eternity is hell. But because God loves you, because you are precious to Him, Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life that you were supposed to live. He was perfect. Lived the life you were supposed to live, but then died the death that you were supposed to die in your place. So that if you would simply repent, that means to turn over control of your life to Him, this is done on your behalf, He would save you. 
right? He's either your Lord or he's not. You're either trusting him to take you to heaven. You've received his gift of forgiveness and new life where you have not. And I would just say it probably be appropriate as you start this year if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ that you do so tonight. I'm not going to force you. I'm not, all right? If bowing your heads freaks you out, then don't bow your head. You just look up right here at me. That's fine. If you know that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you know it, And you've never surrendered yourself to Him, but you are willing to. You know He's Lord, and you, in your own words, Jesus, you are Lord. I surrender my whole life to you. Jesus, you are Lord. I surrender the rest of my life to you. Those are not magic words, okay? But if taking your place to save you that say, Lord Jesus, I receive your gift of forgiveness and new life. Right now, I receive your gift of forgiveness and new life. Come into my life and save me. Just put their trust in Christ. Maybe some are, are analyzing and considering where they are with you and maybe they'll need to have a conversation with somebody before they leave. God, I pray that you would finish what you started. God, I pray that you would call out of this group of followers. Maybe we ask.